morning, everybody. Wow. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. We appreciate it. I'll pay you later. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to John chapter 20. We're going to look at uh, verses 24 to 29. So we're coming out of Easter, and usually, you know, Easter, anybody enjoy the last week other than the sound was a little crazy in a gym, but that's okay. It was a great Easter for all five of you who just applauded. That's good. Uh, but as we, we step into a new series, um, we're going to focus in on the resurrection, which seems kind of interesting. We're, this series is called The Resurrection, uh, if, if it's real. Um, and let me kind of give you the backstory about why, why we're doing what we're doing. Is, is historically, you know, we as not just us, but the church in general, Christians, celebrate the resurrection at least one time a year. That's Easter. But sometimes the rest of the year, we always focus in on the cross, and we talk about Jesus' death and paying the price for us, which is important. But if you remove the resurrection from the equation, the cross is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. It's just Jesus was a great teacher who had a lot of insight. He did some cool miracles, but at the end of the day, he died just like every other human being throughout human history. The resurrection sets everything apart and changes everything. So my own personal experience over the last month is, is I was caught off guard by something in, in my, my study. I was actually studying for Easter, preparing for Easter, looking at resources and just kind of getting my mind around some things. And so I, on the internet, I, I came across a, a short message by Andy Stanley, who's a pastor back in Georgia, and he was talking about the, the truth of the resurrection, that the resurrection actually happened. And I'm like, well, okay, I get that. I've been a Christian most of my life, but I thought, just to humor myself, I'll listen to this. And so I sat there at my computer for about, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes, and I just listened to him talk about historically and, and kind of uh, big, seeing the big picture of how the, the resurrection unfolded and the truth of even outside of the Bible, how the evidence is there to actually demonstrate that the resurrection actually happened. And so as he went through this, by the end of this message I listened to, I felt this overwhelming sense of conviction, and that is this. I have known Jesus most of my life, and I do believe in the resurrection, but I don't believe in the resurrection. What I mean by that is I believe, and yeah, I've read the Bible, and growing up in church said, everybody tells you the resurrection happened, and my parents taught me that. And, but I never came to the place where I really understood the resurrection actually really happened. And because it actually really happened, now this is going to sound really basic, Jesus is actually still alive. Now, for some of you, you're like, duh, Pastor John, we get that one. But if that is really true, then it actually changes everything about everything about our lives. If you read back into the Gospels and you read the story, everything changed, everything hinged on what? The resurrection. Everything changed for Jesus' followers. They all thought none of them believed he was going to raise from the dead. None of them did. That's why when he came back, they were like, whoa, wait a second, we don't have a category for this. But if you read through that, you think everything changes. Everything changes for all of his followers. Now they realize the dimension of who Jesus is. And so it's all this, this sense of like, because Jesus is alive, then everything he said is true. Everything he's done is true. And because of that, there's one person in all of human history that actually has defeated death, which is the biggest issue for all of us, is someday we're going to die. But knowing that someone has overcome death so that life actually comes after death. Now, I was convicted with that because if Jesus really is alive, does my life every day reflect the fact that he's alive? Is my life changed like all his followers 2,000 years ago? Or is it just a well-known fact that's just a part of my experience in following Jesus that, yeah, I just get that, his death and resurrection, we kind of let it roll off our tongue, but don't really live it out and don't really understand it because it's not something that actually changes our lives. 
So when I was confronted with that, I thought, we need to dive into this. We need to actually think about this. And this morning, we're going to take some time to talk about if the resurrection is real, I should actually believe it. I should actually believe that the resurrection actually happened. Because if you, whether you know it or not, all of us, whether you've known Jesus your whole life, maybe you don't even know who Jesus is, all of us at one time or another are skeptics of our own beliefs. We question our own beliefs. You ever want to admit that there's times in your life, even if you're a follower of Jesus, that you're like, what if when I die and I get to the other side of death, what if all of this isn't true? Anybody want to admit you ever thought that? I have. What if this is all a lie? What if this is a great creation of humanity and, and some really cool stories and, and just it's part of my imagination, but it's not real. And so there's that, those moments where you're like, what do I do with this? And I know for me, it makes me go deeper into my experience with Jesus and deeper into setting what I don't understand. And so this morning, I, I want to take a look at, we're going to have you in, in John chapter 20, verse 24 to 29, because there's a guy that's just like us. He lived 2,000 years ago, and his name is Thomas, which, by the way, don't refer to him as Doubting Thomas. That was one scene in his life that we've defined. In fact, we, prob all, we probably all owe him, owe him an apology when we get to heaven someday, because we all call him Doubting Thomas. More of his life was based on belief than it was on doubt. But the moment we capture him in Scripture, it's based on doubt. But I want us in this, in this story today because it, it relates a lot to our experience in truly believing the resurrection. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to talk about this together and how, what that looks like for us in terms of understanding the resurrection. So, so here's, here's the deal. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples a couple times, and now he comes once again to a group of disciples, but Thomas hasn't seen him yet. So starting in verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side do not disbelieve but believe thomas answered him my lord and my god and jesus said to him have you believed because you have seen me blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed so you and i whether we know it or not we're just like thomas because whether we want to admit it or not, we require things from God in order for us to truly believe. And when you look at Thomas's experience and how it reflects on our experience as skeptics, our skepticism and Thomas's skepticism were built on three things. You can see it right there in the passage. It was built on proof, doubt, and fear. Those are the three factors that make us skeptics, that make us kind of have a negative outlook and question things. And not that questioning things are bad, because when you look at this passage, it's the fact that Thomas questioned that led him to a revelation of Jesus he had never had before. But those three things you can see in the passage, you look at verse 25, Thomas says this, unless I see, it's proof. Unless I see it with my own eyes. I don't, it's nice that you guys have seen Jesus and he's alive. That's great for you, but that's not good enough for me. I actually have to see him. I have to know that he's real. And I think there's times for all of us where we feel that way. It's like, okay, that's great for other people at the church. That's great for Christians. That's great for my family. But that doesn't fly for me. I need something more. I need something to prove to me beyond a shadow of a doubt in my mind that Jesus is real, that what he says is true, that he really lived, he really died, he really rose from the dead. I need more than just somebody telling me that. 
And there's a second thing, which is doubt. And that is, what, what, is, what does Thomas say? Unless I see him, I will what? I'll never believe. Unless this happens. And that statement that Thomas makes is actually very emphatic. It's like, listen, here's my criteria. Here's the punch list. Here's the checklist that Jesus has to fulfill. Otherwise, I'm not going to believe. And this is the only way it's going to work. And so he articulates, obviously, he has to be able to touch Jesus. And then this is all based on verse 26. It's based on fear. Uh, Jesus actually shows up uh, into that room with the disciples, and he says something very interesting. He said this other places, too, but he says, peace be with you. Why would Jesus say, peace be with you? Because it's a little strange for somebody to show up in a room where the doors are closed and locked. You agree? That's kind of strange. So automatically, you're afraid, but the fear was beyond just the fact that Jesus showed up in a locked room. The fear was, even though we've seen him, what does this all mean? We don't understand all this. And even for Thomas, it's like, could this be true? I'm afraid. Is it true? Is it not true? And there's this overwhelming anxiety in all of us. If we don't have the proof beyond a, a shadow of a doubt that this is real, there, that we have anxiety. And so all those things mixed together cause you and I, even though we might say, yeah, I believe in the resurrection, we don't experience the resurrection because we really don't believe it. The only way you really know if you believe something is if your experience reflects the fact of what you believe. And that's why this morning what I, I like to do is take some time to talk about our doubts and our fears and the proof that we require. So what I want to start with is that there is proof before the Bible that Jesus rose from the dead. And this is really important because as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, one of the defaults that we have that is good, but it sometimes is not good in our culture, is that we believe it because the Bible says so. That's great, and we should believe what the Bible says. But for the average person in our country, when you walk up to them and you try to explain to them the truth of, the Jesus, of Jesus, and the only reference point you have is the Bible, they'll say, that's nice, but I don't even believe in the Bible. That's just some stories people made up and think it's really cool. But I don't, that doesn't hold any weight in my life, so don't go quoting the Bible to me, because it doesn't mean anything. And for some of us, the only reason we believe in the resurrection is because we read it in the Bible and someone told us, you find it in the Bible, so it's true. But if something is true in the Bible, then it has to be true outside of the Bible, because the Bible is not made up. So with that in mind, we need to understand this. And by the way, the Bible that we have and we understand didn't come around until the 4th century. The only Bible that in Jesus' day was the Old Testament, was the Jewish scriptures. But the Bible with Old Testament, New Testament, what we have, what we read from, that wasn't until the fourth century. This is happening first century. The resurrection is happening first century. So why is that important? Because in the first century, they did not have social media. They did not have telephones. They didn't have televisions. They didn't have news outlets. They didn't have all these different avenues to communicate things that we communicate instantly all the time. What did they have? Their modes of communication in that day were two things, speaking and writing. When something happened of significance, they couldn't go post it to Instagram or Facebook and see how many likes they had. The only avenues they had was to speak with their mouth and share stories and then record those stories down so that people from generations on could know what they experienced. So when they did that, they were doing that from an eyewitness perspective. So before the Bible even gets formed, let's just go through, and by the way, so you understand this, the writers of the Bible, when they wrote, they wrote what they wrote, didn't know they were writing in the Bible. Sometimes you think, oh yeah, you know, uh, uh, Paul wrote, sat down, he said, okay, I'm writing inspired scripture, so let me write, he had no idea he was writing inspired scripture. He was simply recording what God had prompted him to record about his experiences and the truth about who God was. And that's important because this is the way it works. 
evidence before the Bible that the resurrection happened starts with a guy named Matthew. You think, oh, he, he wrote in the New Testament. He wrote the first book of the New Testament. Do you know what? He didn't know he was writing the Bible. What was, what was Matthew doing? He's doing the same thing that everybody did at his time. When he witnessed something that was amazing, he said to himself, I have to record what has happened so that other people will know. So he took upon himself as a Jewish person to say, I am going to record all of what has happened with this man named Jesus so people will know what happened. Same thing happens with a guy named Mark who most likely was Greek. He, he witnesses Jesus' death and his resurrection and says, I have to write about this. So he sits down to write down kind of a, an order of what Jesus had done and said so that people would believe. And the same thing is true for Luke. Luke was in the medical, most likely most, um, in the medical profession. He sat down, listen, I have to communicate. I have to write down all these things that I've experienced and seen, things that I'm telling other people because even he wrote to a man named Theophilus to say, hey, listen, you need to understand this is true. And so I'm doing what we all do at this time. I'm writing down my eyewitness account. And then John, the fourth gospel, John later in life, because remember John was one that actually stood at the empty tomb and witnessed the resurrection firsthand. He says towards the end of his life, I have to record this. I have to write this out so people know that Jesus is who he says he is. That's the whole point of the book of John. So John records that. And then there's Peter. We all know Peter. And Peter obviously struggled with his belief, but obviously witnessed the resurrection to the point when Peter writes in First and Second Peter, he writes about what? The resurrection. He's recording what he's experienced. And then you go beyond those, and then you get to James. This is what's amazing. Everybody, anybody remember who James, most likely we understand James to be? He's the brother of Jesus. Now we think, oh yeah, he's the brother of Jesus. They had this great family, you know, Mary and Joseph, and then, you know, no, just think about the dynamics here. Jesus is the firstborn, okay? He comes along before Mary and Joseph are ever wed. So auto automatically, his birth is already in question. So then James comes somewhere in the order. He's, he's the brother of Jesus. And so can you imagine what it was like for James to grow up with Jesus? Here's this brother of mine, which I'm not quite sure. Mom says that she was, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but I don't know the way he acts sometimes. I don't know if that's true. Think about it. Think about your sibling. How hard would it be for your sibling to convince you that they are the son of God and they're going to die and rise from the dead? Relatively difficult, other than the fact you'd think they're absolutely crazy. So James is growing up in this context, and he's looking at Jesus, and you can probably figure out from the first part of his life, he's looking at Jesus, and he's not buying it. He doesn't see Jesus as God. He doesn't see Jesus as Messiah. He says, Jesus is my brother. But the same James watch, watches Jesus grow up, then he watches his ministry, and then he watches his death and his resurrection. And that same J James writes the book of James talking about the resurrection, becomes a leader, a primary leader in the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because he actually witnessed his brother no longer was his brother. His brother was what? The Messiah, was God in human flesh, was buried and then raised. That's some pretty significant evidence that James witnessed. And then you have Paul which is really, Paul is so significant historically, even outside the New Testament. If you travel to most college campuses today and you are in a, a, a history class and you are going through history in the first century in the Middle East, almost every college professor, whether they are believing or not, will tell you that Paul is a true historical figure that did more to spread the truth of Christianity than anybody else at his time. He's real. And Paul, what did Paul do? Paul witnessed the resurrected Savior. And it changed his life. But it goes beyond that. This is interesting. You know, one of the things that happened all the time 
not every time, but most of the time in, in that day and age when somebody of significance died, automatically a shrine would be formed around their grave. We do it today. Somebody dies in a hit-and-run accident. What's one of the first things that you see on the side of the road? Candles or a cross? What is it? It's a shrine to remember that person. In Jesus' day and age, when somebody of significance died, automatically by their grave was a shrine to remember them. Do you know what there isn't today, anywhere in the world? A shrine to Jesus. Some of you have been, I haven't been there, but you go, go to Israel. You'll go on tours, and they'll say, yeah, we think this is where the tomb was. You know, and they come up with a different, couple different locations. But you know what you'll never see at the tomb? A shrine. Why? Because when there's no body there, there's no, no reason to put a shrine there. There's no shrine in the world to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is not dead. He's alive. So history's telling us this. Then we can go a little more, more specifically to, to historians' time of this. So Tacitus, which is, who is a, was a Roman historian, trusted Roman historian, in 64 AD, actually wrote outside the New Testament, outside of any biblical references, before the Bible was formed, he talked about Jesus and even referenced his death and his resurrection. This is a secular historian recording what he had heard and seen about this man named Jesus. Then there's even a more famous historian, a Jewish historian named Josephus that a lot of people read from. He has a lot of rich Jewish his history. And in the first century, he writes as well about Jesus, this man, and his death. And then he doesn't say it, but there's an assumption about some understanding that he's not dead anymore. So these are historians outside of the Bible, before the Bible's ever formed, and they're writing about Jesus and the fact that some, there's some truth to this reality, that he's alive even though he died. But then here, here's, here's the evidence that really screams the truth of the truth of the resurrection and how it transformed people's lives. So 30 years after the resurrection, Nero, the Roman emperor at the time, decided to burn Rome to the ground. What a great leader, right? And in the process, he chose to blame it on Christians in Rome that it was their doing so that he could start uh, an uprise against them because they were growing in number and popularity. Now, you might think, well, that's a nice historical fact, but you have to think about this for a moment. This is 30 years after the resurrection. This is 1,500 miles away from Jerusalem. There are verified thousands upon thousands of Christians living in Rome 30 years after the resurrection, and they're growing in number so much so that Nero feels threatened by them, and he's got to do something to stop them. So he burns Rome to the ground, and he blames them. How in the world can there be thousands of Christians 30 years later, 1,500 miles away from where Jesus supposedly rose from the dead? Because they actually believed it. First century, the, if, you, if you track first century history, the gospel spread rapidly and the truth of Jesus' resurrection spread rapidly to the point it was transforming lives every single day. And the reason this is significant is because historians will tell you it takes a minimum, a minimum of 40 years for something to become folklore or legendary, which means it's a great story, but it really isn't truth. Maybe there's slivers of truth, but it's not true. It takes a minimum of 40, but most likely it takes 60 to 80 years for something to take on to that. Why that time frame? Because it takes at least 60 to 80 years for every person who was alive at the time of the event to be dead so that you no longer have any more eyewitness testimony. Now you're just taking the testimony of somebody else who's told you that. But 30 years after when there are plenty of people still alive as eyewitnesses to the resurrection, there are so many Christians in Rome that even the Roman emperor feels threatened by them. 
that doesn't happen through folklore. That doesn't happen through legend. That doesn't happen through a nice story or a lie that people decided to believe. That only happens when somebody actually, for the only time in human history, dies and comes back from the dead to actually threaten an empire. You don't threaten an empire for a lie. You threaten an empire because you believe the truth, because you've seen it with your own eyes, and you've experienced it. So this is the evidence that we have outside the Bible, before the Bible, and then we have the Bible formed around the fourth century. So, but here's some significant things. If that's not enough historically, so we're outside the New Testament. So you can't, someone, you can't come along and say, well, come on, that's biased because that's in the Bible. That's outside the Bible. But now let's look into the narrative of the Bible. When you look into the Gospels, this is really important. The Pharisees, this is what's so shocking. It's actually recorded in the Gospels. They were standing at the foot of the cross. They watched Jesus die. This is what they wanted. They watched his body be removed from the cross and be placed in the tomb. They watched the man die. They knew he died, and that was for them a great victory because this blasphemer was finally silenced. But then when he rose from the dead, they had a problem. And you would think they would have come to grips with Wow, he really is God. If he died and now he's alive, he must be the real deal. We need to repent. We need to get that doesn't happen, does it? What does happen is they pull in some of the soldiers and they say, hey, you need to make up a story. You need to make up a story to tell people that Jesus' body was actually stolen from the tomb. And he actually is dead, but we just lost his body. Tell people that. You know that's been proliferated for 2,000 years? 2,000 years. But there's a problem with that. There's a problem with that understanding about the way that they understood that because the proof within the Bible tells us something very important. If the resurrection never happened and all this is is a fairy tale, then when the writers of the New Testament sat down and recorded their eyewitness accounts, there are a number of things that they would have done to make sure that people believed that they were valid. And there are a number of things they wouldn't have done because they knew if they wrote it that way, people wouldn't believe them. So let's just look at that, that from that. From, so proof from the Bible. If you're going to make up a story about the resurrection, these are the things that you would have to do, or you think you would have to do. First off, if you're going to write about something that you want people to believe, you are going to write yourself in as the writer. You're going to write yourself in as the hero. All good writers do that when they're writing fiction, but none of the writers did. When somebody is writing, you, you're going to write a hero in a story, and if you are the writer and you are in the story, you are always going to come out on top, aren't you? Most people are not going to write about the bad stuff of their lives. They're going to write about the good stuff. So you're going to write yourself in as the hero. None of the New Testament writers wrote themselves in the hero of the Gospels. You ever notice that? They're not the centerpiece. In fact, you don't even, sometimes you don't even know they're the ones writing. Because all of them, all of them, and in their own writings, admit that all of them at one time or another had a miserable failure in denying who Jesus is. All of them. So if you're going to try to convince people of something, you're going to make up a story, you're going to make yourself look good. You're not going to make yourself look bad. Second thing, is that you're going to make sure that the first person to witness the risen Savior is not a woman. It's going to be a man. And why? Because in first century Judaism, and even in the Roman Empire, women had no status. In fact, the, women's, the testimony of a woman was never, ever, ever to be trusted. Who's the first person to witness Jesus' resurrection? It's Mary Magdalene. She's the first person to the tomb. 
oops, they got the story wrong. It was supposed to be a man. It was supposed to be Peter. That was supposed to be John. No, those guys weren't fast enough. They had had a foot race to get to the tomb after she had already seen Jesus. She's the first person to testify to the resurrection. If you're making up a story in first century Israel or in Rome, you do not include a woman because she cannot be trusted. But there she is in the middle of the story. There's a third thing. You're going to make sure that there are mass conversions to Jesus after his resurrection of all of his enemies. Doesn't that make sense? You're, you're against it, and then suddenly one man in all of human history comes back to life after being dead. You witness it, and so now as an enemy, you fall on your knees before God, and you say, I repent. I believe. You never see that in the story. Not one time after the resurrection do you see, other than Paul, who was Saul, and that's when he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. But you don't see any of the religious leaders recorded in the Gospels somehow coming to this mass conversion over to believe in Jesus. Why? Because this is not made up. That's the hardness of the heart of humanity, that even when they see the resurrection, they still choose not to believe. And then there's a fourth thing. There was no way that the disciples could tell the story of Jesus' resurrection in Jerusalem and it be a lie. So Think about, if, you, if, if you've ever read the Gospels and you haven't, so think about this. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, it was an absolute frenzy. Palm Sunday, he comes in on a donkey, and these, the entire city comes out, and they're waving branches, and they're worshiping him, and then they go through the week, and they all start turning their back on him. And here's the way it worked. Roman execution through crucifixion was the most public, humiliating display of execution there ever was, and it was designed to be absolutely public. Jerusalem was in such a frenzy that when Jesus went to the cross, most people in the city either had eyewitnesses of his death or they knew it was going on. They knew he had died. Nobody in the city. In fact, that's why when you read in Luke, which we'll talk about in a, little, in a few weeks, these post kind of resurrection encounters, these two people encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus and they're like, how come you don't know what's happened in Jerusalem the last week? Where have you been? Everybody knows what's happened. Jesus died. That's what they tell him. So the entire city knows this. So wouldn't it be crazy if the disciples came along and said, Jesus is alive! And all the people had to do is say, let's just take a little trip out to the tomb. The tomb that still holds his body if he's dead, right? But if he's alive, see, they couldn't tell the story if he actually was dead because they could find his body and prove that the disciples were making up a story, and they were lying. So there's all kinds of information that we find in the Bible that tells us this is not made up, this is not a fable, this is not legend, this is true. History tells us. The Bible tells us this. Why is this significant? Because for some of us, if you're like me, you may have followed Jesus your whole life, but you've never really understood or believed the resurrection. You just took it at face value because somebody told you it was true. And I know for me, it was this, this weight that hit me like, this is actually true. Jesus really is alive. Not just, oh, yes, Jesus is alive. Let's sing songs about it. And let's just wait till we see him in eternity. Jesus is actually alive. He actually overcame death. If he overcame death, then everything about who he is and what he does in my life should transform every aspect of who I am. My life should be different, just like all of his followers' lives were different after he rose from the dead. So if that's true, there's something I know that has to happen in all of us. And I know it's true in my life, and I've seen it true in the lives of so many other people. The historical fact of the resurrection is not enough. It's not enough. You and I need more to believe in that. Because there's a difference between passive belief and active belief. Passive belief will believe facts. Like, for example, 
You didn't know, but you were actually practicing passive belief when you came in and sat down in the chair that you're in today because you didn't think about it, but you actually believed that the chair would hold your weight. That's called passive belief. But active belief means that it actually shapes the way I think, the way I live, the way I do things, because I actually believe something about the reality of my life that changes the whole outlook that I have on the world. That's active belief. That's why when Jesus talked about belief, he didn't say, come and believe about me. He said, if you actually literally translate it, he said, come and believe into me. What's the difference? One is fact. The other is experience. See, all of us need more than just fact to believe. We need the experience of what Jesus does in our life to say, yeah, I believe in the resurrection, not only because historically it's true, but because I've had an encounter with Jesus that has changed me forever. So let's look back in the passage. Because we're all still dealing with our skepticism. So when our skepticism finally meets Jesus, when it finally gets personal, when we get beyond all the facts and information of what we think we want to believe, then we meet Jesus, it changes everything. So it happened this way for Thomas. So if you go back, look at verse 27. Our skepticism meets Jesus. When it becomes personal, what happens is he actually surpasses our need for proof. Our need for factual proof doesn't mean that God says, okay, I'm going to remove your brain, which means you don't have to, like, search for facts. What happens is the very thing that we present to God as the checklist that, God, you have to do this, this, and this, he goes beyond that. So if you, if you look at the passage, what, what's interesting, one thing that, that you, you see that you don't see is that the very thing that Thomas demanded God had to do through Jesus was that he had to touch him. In fact, when Jesus encounters, Jesus actually welcomes him and says, come and touch me. But you know what you don't see? Now, we don't know for sure Thomas could have touched Jesus, but you know what would be pretty significant to this to be included in the passage that Thomas went over and he stuck his hand or stuck his finger in the nail prints and he put his hand in his side because then you go, okay, well, Thomas gets it. You never find that in this passage. The very thing that Thomas said, I won't believe unless is not even recorded in scripture that he ever, ever did it. That's important. Why? Because when he saw Jesus, it changed him completely. It changed him completely. It went beyond his need for proof to a personal experience that began to transform him. And I think for you and I, one of the things that we have to come to grips with is that in our life, if Jesus is going to be real, not only do we believe the factual reality of the resurrection, but you and I need to have the power of God intersect our lives and change us. If we don't, then seriously, we're, we're functional atheists, and we're like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. It's as though the resurrection didn't happen. If the resurrection doesn't happen, then what are we? We're a bunch of fools. We should just pack up right now, go home and watch the NBA playoffs, and eat lunch. That's what we should do. But if Jesus really is alive, then it changes everything about us. It actually changes our experience and what it means to live life today. That the power of God intersects our life because Jesus has the ultimate power over death. He has power to do anything that he wants to do in our lives. Transformation. You don't have to raise your hand, but I'm sure you, all of us could agree at one time or another in your life, you have presented a list to God. You've said to him, here it is. Here's my hoops. Here's my checklist. You've got to do these, and if you don't do these, you really aren't God, and I will not believe. That's what Thomas did. And for most of us, that list is still hanging out there somewhere. We're still waiting until we encounter Jesus, and that list just disappears. For me, that happened when I was in seventh grade. I prayed the prayer at age six. I remember I knelt down on the couch with my dad after an episode of The Waltons, if any of you can remember that show, because I was afraid of going to hell, and I needed fire insurance. So I got on my knees, and I prayed the prayer with my dad and said, I'm saved at age six. 
But as I got older, I started to realize there was a disconnect between my parents' experience and my experience. And I remember it kind of hit kind of the high point in 6th, 7th, 8th grade where I was grappling with and I realized, okay, it's great for you. It's nice that the Bible says so, but it doesn't mean anything to me. I haven't had any personal experience with God to say, yes, this is true. But you, I, would t- I remember my dad, like, you can tell me all your great stories, but it doesn't mean anything to me because it hasn't happened for me. And so I remember I came with a list to God and said, you have to prove yourself to be real to me. Doesn't, I don't care what my parents say. I don't care what my youth pastor says. I don't care about church. You just have to do something that, does, that changes my life. And so actually, I got my Bible, and for like a year, I read more Bible than I had before, thinking, okay, I'm going to find in the scriptures, it's going to be that, oh, moment, you know, when the light hits the one verse, and you're like, oh, everything makes sense now. And I st- to this day, I remember I had my, my, my kid's living Bible. It had the whole thing, but it had pictures in it, too. And I always turn to the pictures of Jesus holding the little lamb, you know, all those kind of nice little churchy pictures. But I kept reading through the Gospels and waiting. There's going to be this moment, and all the proof I need is going to be right here. And I'll tell you, it never came. Never came. I was reading the Bible, and you think the Bible should be all that I need, and it never came until seventh grade. Most of you know, you've heard me tell my story. When I was in seventh, sixth and seventh grade particularly, I was overwhelmed with anxiety. And if I probably... I probably should have been on, clinically should have been on medication, but, but we didn't go that route. But my family did go to counseling. I was so gripped by fear that I couldn't even walk outside my house. I faked an illness for six weeks in sixth grade to get out of going to school. I basically fooled my parents for about mm, four, month, four weeks of that six weeks, and then they got onto it. And that's when we went into counseling, and I completely turned our house upside down because I was gripped. My, I'm the youngest of, of four kids, and our family's being controlled by one kid because he's so afraid of everything. And I remember this is at the same time in this tension point, like, God, you have to show me that you're real. I'm reading the Bible, and it's doing nothing for me. And I remember going through that, and then it was in the middle of my, my English class, third period, seventh grade, second week of my seventh grade year. I won't go into all the details, but I had literally run away twice, and the, the next time that I ran away, my parents were good enough, and they caught me. They threw me in the car. My, I'm not kidding. My mom sat on me in the back seat, even though I was bigger than her, and then we got out of the car, and I tried to bolt again at school, and my dad, who literally I was at that time, maybe the same size. I might have been an inch taller than him, literally picked me up off of the ground. He had superhuman human strength. If you see my dad, literally, he's like 5'8", a buck 30. He's not that big. He picked me up over his head on his shoulder, and this is, this is me at seventh grade in the middle of my math class, first period, kicks the door open in the middle of class period and slams me down in a desk. Just to say, nobody was learning about math anymore that morning. <laughs> the class went silent. The teacher looked at it, and the only thing that let the teacher know it was okay is one of my counselor came in from the school, and he kind of said, it's okay. Puts me down, and I just put my head down, and I'm like, like, okay, my life is over. I am completely embarrassed. I can never come to this school again. That's what I'm thinking. But I'm so gripped with fear. And so my dad said, listen, you're not going anywhere today. He goes, every single class you go to today, I will be sitting outside. And if you run, I will catch you. You're going to school today. I'm like, okay. So I get up from first period. I go to second period. Same thing. I don't want to talk to anybody. And by that time, it's amazing how the grapevine works in middle school. I get into second period and people are already chirping. What is wrong with him? Did you hear what happened in his first period class? Can you believe that? What kind of a freak is he? This is what's going on. My head is down on my desk. I'm so afraid I can't even look up. I get into third period English, and I'm sitting there. And I will t- I tell you, to this day, I can't explain it, but I experienced it. One moment, I am afraid of everything. The next moment, 
gone. I mean, instantaneous. I lifted my head up off the desk, and I looked around the room, and I, I did not know what happened. But the fear, that level of anxiety, I have never, ever had again in my entire life. The proof that God wanted to give me was beyond the proof that I required of him. I wanted to find some verse in the Bible that said, oh, now I understand it all. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to encounter you in such a way that you cannot deny that I encountered you and transformed you. See, it's not enough just to believe the fact. It's important, but I believe the fact now because I've experienced the reality of Jesus that went beyond my proof. Second thing, same thing for Thomas. Look at verse 28. When our skepticism meets Jesus, he will surpass not only our proof, he will surpass our understanding. Thomas says in verse 28, his response to Jesus is this, my Lord and my God. You never hear Thomas recorded before that ever saying those words to Jesus. This is Thomas, who was with Jesus day in and day out for three years. He heard Jesus teaching. He watched him do miracles. He watched him die, and now he's witnessed the resurrection. And in that moment, all this information that Thomas ex- had with Jesus now goes beyond his understanding, and it's almost the, the way it's written in the passage, almost uncontrollably, Thomas blurts out, My Lord and my God! It wasn't some calculated statement. It was coming deep from inside of him that he realized for the first time who Jesus was. And like the light went on for him. Why? Because Jesus had surpassed his own understanding of who he thought Jesus was. Jesus was so much more than what he experienced, and he had confronted his understanding, and even more so beyond what Thomas probably held, which most of the disciples held up until this point, and even still struggle with, they thought Jesus had come to just restore the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus didn't come to restore the kingdom of Israel. He came to establish the kingdom of God, which had to do with everybody. So now Thomas, is the light's going on for him. This is way beyond what he understood Jesus to be before. And in my journey of following Jesus, I'll tell you, there are multiple times that are markers in my, my, my journey with knowing who Jesus is in my life, where Jesus comes along and he begins to go beyond what I understand of him. And I've said this so many times, God never changes, but our understanding of God has to change. Otherwise, we don't know him. We know a concept of him, because for some of us, we came to know Jesus, and we, we thought, okay, I understand who God is. I got a nice little belief system. I have a little box that I frame around it, and that's who God is, and that was 20 years ago. That was 30 years ago. That was 40 years, and that's still your understanding of who God is, because you haven't let him outside the box yet, because you haven't gotten to the place where you've been desperate enough for him to break through in your life and do what he wants to do so that your understanding expands. We don't know everything about God, because if we did, then we would be God. But our understanding of him continues to grow day by day as he reveals more and more of who he is. And there are some moments when that's accelerated. And for me, it happened when we planted our church in Ventura. And some of you have heard me share this story. But when we were in Ventura and we planted the church that we were in, I had come out of Bible college. I had gone to all the seminars. I had read all the books. And I was convinced, really convinced, I had a full understanding of what the church is supposed to look like, how to plant a successful church, and how to be the perfect pastor. I had the education. I had a whopping five years of experience in ministry. So I had, in my mind, I knew what I was going to do. So I launched out with my, I'm, I remember I prided myself. At the time, the, the San Francisco 49ers actually were a good football team. That was a long time ago. But one of the things that their coach would do is, in, in each game that was amazing, is they would script the first 15 plays. Literally, it didn't matter what's happening in the game. These are the first 15 plays we're going to roll out. 
They'd script them, and then they would verify. They would actually take that, and they would modify after that. So I told our leadership team, I said, listen, I've scripted the first 15 plays of the church, which was like the first three years, and this is what we're going to do, as though I had consulted God on the fact that this is his church, not my church, but I hadn't done that. I hadn't learned that yet. So anyway, basically, long story short, the church never materializes what I think it's supposed to be. So I'm mad at people. I'm frustrated at myself. I'm depressed. I'm a horrible person to be around. Honestly, I was. Until finally one day after preaching a message and looking at the church in front of me and thinking this is a horrible, horrible failure and disaster, I stepped down off of the stage and said to myself, I am never doing this again. I'm never going to preach again. I'm done. And it just so happened that day we had a planned trip up to Fresno to visit my family, my parents. And so Kim and I and Courtney and Jordan, we hop in the car. And I am, I am just as depressed as I've ever been in my life. And I'm done. And I'm telling Kim that. And she's probably looking at me like, what is wrong with my husband? And we get to my parents' house. It's the only time I've ever done this in my life. I cried for three hours straight until there was no tears left. I just sobbed because I felt like it was an absolute failure. And I was mad at God, I was mad at people, I was mad at myself, and I couldn't understand. And finally, after three hours of sobbing, I finally realized I was the problem. And God, in that three-hour period, destroyed my pride that would not let me see there was so much more to him than I had allowed him to be. I had created a box, and he was destroying the box. And God spoke to me and finally said, listen, I finally have you where I want you. You don't have all the answers. You're not the perfect pastor. And here's the good news. You don't have to. And then Jesus said something very profound that he had said over and over in the scriptures. He said to me, I am the Lord of the church. You are not. And that was like, poof, blew my mind. Even though I wasn't calling myself the Lord of the church, I was functioning as the Lord of the church. And that was one of the hardest and best times of my understanding who God was. Why? Because I went back to the church and realized I don't have to perform. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to have all the answers. I just have to follow Jesus. And as I follow Jesus, I'll let other people follow me. But they better not follow me if I'm not following Jesus. In fact, I can remember two weeks later, I got back and I was preaching again and I prepared a message. And here was the title of the message. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) That's what it was. I did. I stood up on a Sunday morning for 40 minutes. I explained how I did not know what I was doing as their pastor. And half the church applauded because they all knew that already. (laughs) And the rest said, Pastor, you can't say that. I had people come to me afterwards and say, you can't say that. I said, why can't I say that? Because if you don't know what you're doing, then I don't know what I'm doing. And if, it, and if you don't understand that, I've looked to you, and you're the one that makes me understand Jesus. And if you don't understand what's going on, then I, and actually our church shrank. People stopped coming. Because that's the church the pastor doesn't know what he's doing. But our church became more healthy, our church became more focused, and our church actually was led by Jesus. And the healthiest season in that church was the last three years because I no longer had to be the lead or, or the, had to be the Lord of the church. Jesus was the Lord of the church. That was one of those poof moments for me. I don't know what it is for you, but I know for many of us, if you're like me, your pride is holding Jesus in a box. And he's saying, you have great factual information that you believe, but I want you to experience in me in such a way that you have now a whole other dimension of who I am in your life. That's the way God works. And he usually will come and hit you at the lowest moment of your life. Because that's when your defenses are down and that's when you're desperate for him to break through. And then the final thing, verse 29. Our skepticism meets Jesus. He will surpass our reality. 
but we perceive to be real. It says, Jesus says this in verse 29 when he's talking to Thomas. He says, have you believed because you've seen me? Then he says, blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Who is that verse talking about? That's us. There are literally billions of people, present and past, who have believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus and never were eyewitnesses to it. We didn't have the benefit, we didn't have the privilege of being Thomas and sitting in that room and seeing Jesus come in and being to be able to witness the risen Savior. We didn't have that. But what does Jesus say of people who through their understanding of factual information and their experiential knowledge of Jesus' work by the Holy Spirit, who believe, what does he say of us? That we are blessed. Probably even, he's saying more blessed than even Thomas. Because how many times have you just said, Jesus, can I just go back 2,000 years ago? Can I just like be there and watch you walk out of the tomb so I know for sure? And Jesus says, no, you believe and not have seen, being, have seen that. You are blessed because you've let facts and your experience form your belief in me. And this morning and today, I believe that that's one of the things that Jesus wants to solidify in us. He wants to combine the truth of the factual reality of the resurrection with the experience of his presence in our life that transforms our soul to form in us a belief that changes the reality of who we are every single day. Every day. So this is what I like to do. Danny, would you come and join me? We're going to go back into worship for a couple songs as we conclude. But there's, there's a couple things I'd like us to respond to today, and that is, in reference to two weeks ago, if you weren't here, you probably heard two weeks ago there was something pretty powerful that God was doing within us. We were responding to some, some of the things that the Lord had said to us about, about his work in our life, and so we gave space for that. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to over the last couple of weeks where God spoke specifically to them and brought freedom to them, or they experienced healing, that God was here working uh, in their lives. But here's the challenge that we face when we experience that. We go to one of two extremes. We look back and think, oh, that was really great two weeks ago. But, you know, we just kind of go back to the normal routine because that's familiar. Or we go back to two weeks ago. We think, okay, we've got we to recapture the moment. We've got to recreate. That was so cool. What songs did we sing? What passage of Scripture did we read? What do we do? I gotta, it's like almost superstition. If I just repeat the same steps, I'll get the same outcome. And neither, the, neither one of those realities is true. Here's the truth. If Jesus is alive, if Jesus is risen from the dead, if factually that's true, historically that's true, and then experientially God wants to encounter us in such a way to demonstrate the power of the resurrection in our life, guess what? That happens every day. That happens in every moment. This is what I've discovered about church and pastoring. It's the third church that I've pastored. God doesn't pick and choose certain Sundays where he's going to do something, and then other Sundays he takes the day off. We don't, we just, oh, that's kind of funny. But you know what? We act that way. Because we'll say, oh, God was really at work, as though any other Sunday or any other day, God wasn't at work. I've discovered this. God is always at work. The issue is not God's work. The issue is, are we ready for what God wants to do? We're the issue. God's not the issue. He's always at work. The resurrection is always transforming people's lives. The Holy Spirit always, is always showing up and doing what he's doing, not just in a service, but every single day of our lives. It's just, are we aware of that? Are we aware that on Monday morning when you have to drag yourself out of bed and go back to work where you really don't want to work, that Jesus is actually at work in your life? That the resurrection is still true and there's a dimension of life that God's called you to live, that he's transforming inside of you that even relates to your mundane, boring life. 
that God said, I've died for you and I've risen from the dead for more than the life that you're living. There's a dimension of life. That's what we talked about in Easter last week. Jesus said, life that is abundant. And the way that life comes is when we surrender to it. Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's what, who, who's the one that's doing the living? It's Jesus living through me. It's no longer my life. And the sooner we realize that, the happier we become because I don't have to hang on to life. Why? Because death is a comma, not a period. Death is never the end when we believe in the resurrection, who Jesus is. And if that's true, then every single day of my life, I am not consumed with the fear of death. I'm not consumed with trying to grasp life because I'm gonna lose it, because I'm gonna die someday. But I'm living fully in the reality if Jesus calls me home tonight, tomorrow, and in 50 years, it doesn't matter. Today is the day that Jesus brings life to me just like every other day of my life. Anybody wanna experience that life? Because if we don't have that life, we are fools like Paul said. But if that life is true, then all I have to do is, okay, God, I'm going to surrender to you right now. I want to experience your encounter in my life today. In fact, just close your eyes. I'm going to pray, and we're going to go back into worship. And it's not to work up emotion. It's not to manufacture. But this is one of the things that's true. A couple weeks ago, we made space and room. You know, this is true every Sunday. And it doesn't even have to be worship after I met the message. You're always free to come to the front. You're always free to go to the back. You can stand up. You can sit down. You can kneel. You can, if the Lord gives you something or tells you to pray for somebody else, get up in the middle of worship and go pray for somebody. Let God do what he wants to do. And in these moments, one thing I know for sure, that, that it's not that there's a certain physical posture that says, yeah, that's it. But I know one thing's for sure. You and I cannot remain passive when Jesus wants to work in our life. He's wanting us to respond. And so you may need to respond by standing. You may need to respond to coming to the front. You may need to respond by kneeling. You may need to actually lay on your face before God. Whatever it is that God prompts you and says, listen, I'm going to encounter you right now. That you would be obedient to respond according. Lord Jesus, you are alive. History tells us that. The Bible verifies that. And our experience, it screams that every single day that your power, your resurrection power is present in us because you have sent your spirit to live inside of us. So Lord, in these next few moments, would you do something in each one of us? I know that many of us, we need a Thomas experience. We need when you come in such power and come in such a way that all that we're left with, the only thing that we can utter is, my Lord, now I know who you are. So Lord, would you do that as we give our heart and our attention fully to you in Jesus' name.